Shout out with Sage. Shout me out. And that's all I gotta say. So shout out and let's go. Hi everyone. I'm Sage Stevens. This is Streaming Hub Radio, and I am the host of Shout Out with Sage. Today I have a great guest. He is big in the reality TV domain. You, I'm sure you have watched one of the shows that he has been behind. And today we have Rob Warsaw. Hi, Rob. How are you? Hi, Sage. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And um, so you're big in the reality TV world. What are some of the projects you've worked on? Well, <laughs> it's, or you don't like talking about yourself. No, no, no I like talking about them. Uh, probably 30 to five, 35 to 40 shows, mostly failures. In the reality television world, most of them are failures. But some of the big ones. Okay, are, why why are they failures? Let's yeah. Why are they failures? Because I think a lot of the uh, unscripted world. I think a lot of the every part of the television world is is networks playing roulette, right? They they mm-hmm. greenlight a lot of shows and then they pray that some hit and most don't and some do. I was fortunate enough to be the showrunner, uh, director, and help develop basically the biggest cable television reality show in history, which was Duck Dynasty. Right. And, and how I, did that come about for you? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I was working at a place called Gurney Productions with Scott mm-hmm. and Deirdre Gurney. And uh, I had done a show for them called Auction Hunters. Okay. Which yes. was a relatively successful show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it went for like 185 episodes. And then I did a pilot for them, um, which was about body painting in Vegas, which eventually became Naked Vegas, which was also a show that ran on the Travel Channel. So I had gone two for two. Mm-hmm. And I think in 2010, I was the only guy at Gurney Productions that had a beard. <laughs> so they were like, they were trying to develop Duck. And Scott pulled me into his office and showed me a sizzle reel he had cut together. And I loved it. So then um, I went to go pick up Willie Robertson and his wife, Corey, at LAX because we were going to have a dinner and discuss it at BOA in Santa Monica. Okay. And when I walked off the plane and picked up Willie and Corey, the first thing he said to me, he looked at me and he said, you call that a beard? <laughs> and uh, It went, wasn't quite big enough. Yeah, it was just like this, but he had right. a big, you know, right. Louisiana beard. We went for dinner, we hit it off, and then... We made the show. And that's a quite quite an interesting story. How you, he didn't exactly, wasn't that impressed with you. How do you get talent at the beginning? Like, do is it, is it sort of like dating? Like they have to like you and you have to like them? Or how do you get the talent for, for your shows? I think that's a great analogy, actually. I think everything in television is like dating. I think when you go to... <laughs> You know, you, when you go pitch a show, it's the same. And when you, yeah, when in terms of like relating to talent, I guess, I think in the it's different on every show. I don't think there's any rules. Okay. Sometimes I've gotten along great with the talent. Sometimes they're very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that makes them great reality television characters, by the way. Sometimes, right. sometimes that makes conflict, them that, yeah. 
Yeah, Patty Stanger from The Millionaire Matchmaker was very difficult, but she was also very good. So, yeah, I've I've met her. I've I've worked some red carpets with her. So, <laughs> yeah, and if you took away her ability to be that in real life, then you probably take away her ability to be that good on camera, right? Right. In the case of Duck Dynasty, I think I've done a lot of shows in the South, and I think they think that uh, when they have a preconceived idea of Hollywood and that Hollywood's coming. Mm. I think Hollywood looks a certain way. And then when I show up and, you know, I have a beard and share a beer with them. Right. Maybe I may be geared for more specific talent than others. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Like they, they feel they can relate to you. Is that what you're saying? I hope so. Yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> and what other shows have you worked on? What other, what other shows? My big ones are Biggest Loser, Duck Dynasty, Millionaire Matchmaker, Dating Naked. I did a stint on Growing Up Hip Hop. I did a spinoff of Married at First Sight. Last year, I directed a show for Amazon about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Okay, awesome. Being Canadian, that you are. I want to, that's right, Canadian, represent. Well, I see the Canadians behind you. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. it's funny, actually, because I'm a huge fan of the Montreal Canadians, but they sent me to do a docuseries about the Toronto Maple Leafs, which of course- Yeah, that's a little conflict of interest, is it not? <laughs> yeah. I have this thing called cansplaining, which is like mansplaining, but it's when Canadians explain things to Americans. Right. Well, I have grew up in Canada as well, so I, I understand a few things, even though I've been gone a very long time, so. Okay, but when did you grow up in Canada? I was in Toronto, mostly Montreal, Vancouver, but I was a figure skater growing up. So I remember not liking the hockey players, be, or, you know, because there's always this animosity, I think, between hockey players and figure skaters. Because when you're sharing the ice, the figure skaters, you know, we have our pick and we, you know, and then they have to come out with a Zamboni and take all our pick marks and drag marks away. So it's nice and smooth for the hockey players. So they, you know, nice, smooth ice and just i don't know there's always this competition i felt between figure skaters and hockey players are you saying that the figure skaters like the nicked up ice no i'm saying that the figure skaters create the nicked up ice and so when the hockey players come on to practice or play they just are always i don't know it's always like this battle that because we mess up the ice for them because it's not smooth don't forget some of the best hockey players that ever lived started out as figure skaters that is true. Actually, my, my, I have brothers and they figure skated and played hockey. So yes. I... Right. Steve Eiserman, I think started as a figure skater when he was a kid. Don't quote me on that, but I think so. Okay. So yes. Well, because you learn, you know, finesse and agility, like not just, uh, you know, skating down the ice and hitting people. Stage, were you born in Canada? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where? Toronto. Oh, no way. Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. I think we talked about that a long time ago, but it was probably at some event or or some party or something where we had a few drinks and maybe didn't remember. <laughs> tracks, certainly so, possible. Certainly possible. So what are you working on currently? That I'm not allowed to talk about, but I'm, I'm working on a... Um, okay. I'm working on a pilot that I'm shooting in Mexico at the end of August. Mm. And it's sort of a development deal. And we'll see if it goes. But And how does that work? Like, how long does it take you? Like, 
how do you come up with your ideas? Where do the ideas come from? And then when you do get something that you think is worthwhile, sort of what does that timeline look like? That's a good question. I think for me, the, the pilot that I'm doing in Mexico, I was hired as a showrunner, so it's not my idea. Okay. I've been, I've been hired to sort of direct and showrun this pilot. So it's a, it's a work for hire. I do have another series of my own in development at one of the streamers. That's all I can say. It's a dating format. Mm -hmm. um, and that one, you know, if I can give my, my, my two minutes on this, there's no such thing as reality television from the perspective of the people who make it. Because if you think about Duck Dynasty or the Kardashians, mm -hmm. those are sitcoms that are relatively scripted. Right. They Think about The Bachelor. That's a game show, mm. okay. right? Formatted or, 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 you know, Big Brother. Those are game shows. Then if you think about Ice Road Truckers or Deadliest Catch, people die on those shows. Right. So there's nothing scripted about Deadliest Catch. I mean, these are like fishermen flying off the side of a boat trying to get Alaskan king crab. So... But, and yet they're all called reality shows. Right. And that doesn't really make sense because again, one's scripted, one's a dating show, one's a game show and one's a... Yeah, just like the modern versions of real. those. Yeah. Right, so in my case, I think when, to answer your question, it's like when you get an inspiration for an idea, well, if it's a docu-series, it's because you found a great piece of talent. Like, oh my God, this family of people are actually aliens. And I just <laughs> signed them to an exclusive docuseries. And now you run to the network and go, I just signed Aliens. And chances are the network's going to want to buy a reality show about aliens. I haven't found that yet, by the way, but <laughs> I'm looking for it. So that would be one way to have an idea, which is, I mean, the most unscripted series start with attached talent. Okay either something that somebody's doing that is so absolutely outside the normal bounds of what you've ever seen before, that they're so interesting that it has to be on television, or somehow they're a celebrity that's big enough that anybody cares. In the case of formats, you don't have to have that, right? So for my dating format, I think I just came up with a hook that was different enough that the networks hadn't mm -hmm. heard, and they were like, okay, okay let's try it, you know? Um, I don't know that there's a rule. Most of my ideas come from being in the shower. <laughs> I actually read that there was some some writer I was reading about, and most of their ideas would come when they were like, yeah, in the shower or driving or something. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that's the only time where you're finding like you're just turned off of all your stuff, and you're. I think you know. your subconscious. It's. Uh, you know, you do all the work, like you're doing the work, you're doing the research and talking to people. But then when you're driving, I think what happens is that like your subconscious, because you're doing a ritual thing. And I think your subconscious sort of likes that and it'll give you ideas. I don't know. Because I I drive and I've gotten some great ideas that way as well. So I agree. I think, I think you almost have to, I think you're right. You almost have to turn off your brain a little bit to let that stuff bubble to the surface. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. My acting teacher, when I was in a conservatory, that's how they described it. They're like, you do the work, you do the homework, you know, be prepared. 
And then when you go up there, you have to just let all that go and let your subconscious sort of, or, you know, just trust that you've done the work and it, it will come to you. So I think writing sometimes is the same thing. You, you know, you've sat there at the computer for a while, but those ideas I think need to percolate a little, do they not? I don't know if you agree or not. <laughs> no, probably I've been writing, I have a writing partner and we've been writing a series and sometimes we're like on for four days in a row and then, mm -hmm. and then for whatever reason we can't, you know, he has a gig, I have a gig and we don't, we don't mm -hmm. read for about a week and I can be lying in bed like four days later and be like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. And I don't think, I don't think if I was, if we were still in the zone that I would have been able to step back. Not, yeah, you have to, I think not, I think not doing stuff is as important to the creative process as doing stuff. Right. Although showering counts as doing something. <laughs> it's sort of yes. driving, I guess. Yes. It's something unconscious, I guess is what I mean. Yeah, it's a ritual thing that you sort of know, you know what you're doing, but you're not thinking too, too much about it. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure someone has a theory on this. So so for those people that don't know, can you explain to us exactly what is a showrunner and what does a showrunner do? Yeah, the showrunner is sort of like the CEO of a very small temporary corporation. So <laughs> what's funny about just to backpedal for a second, you asked me like what's the process? From the time that you like come up with an idea in the shower to the time that it's on the air. It's mm -hmm. probably like 18 months, but most okay. of it, most of it does not make the air ever, but if you're lucky and mm -hmm. it makes it all the way through, what's weird about it is, you know, the first month you might be casting, doing Skype interviews with people mm -hmm. just like this kind of, Yeah, yeah. And then the next month you might be pitching or planning or trying to get the money together or dealing, you know, the next month you might be dealing with a legal issue, like getting people signed to a deal memo or a contract. Mm -hmm. Then you go in month four, four and you shoot like a pilot or a sizzle or a presentation. And then in month five, the network is deciding you're editing in month, month five and month six, they're deliberating in month seven, you're, you know, legalizing the terms of things you're in pre-production in month eight, you're in shooting in the show in month nine, editing post deliverables, media stuff. By the time you're done, every 18 months has been like a different job. Okay. Like sometimes my job is literally sitting in an edit bay with an editor for months on end. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my job is literally standing in the middle of the desert in a hundred degree weather, trying not to die while we're shooting something. <laughs> a lot, most of the time my life is sitting in my office writing outlines. Okay. So I think, I think it's always different, but the, the general job of a showrunner is everything. You have to make sure, you know, there's kind of three streams. There's the creative stream. I don't know how to turn that off on my computer. There's the creative stream. There's the sort of logistics stream. And then there's the financial stream. So logistics might mean everything from making sure that there's call sheets and a schedule and vans and lunches and, 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 and somebody to, somebody in, to, to collect receipts and to and to run it against a budget, to create a budget, to create a calendar. That's one. Creatively, you're writing outlines. You're trying to make sure you're liaising with the network. You're trying to make sure that it's in line with how they see it. 
and then you're going and getting those beats. You're actually going and shooting it with the camera guy, with an audio guy, with lighting, whatever. And then sometimes it's post calendars, dealing with editors, figuring out how that workflow is going to work. Okay. Networks give you like a list of a hundred deliverables. It says we need this version, that version, this cut down. And so I think the job of a showrunner is to just try to spin all those plates and make sure that you're on top of any one of those things so that nothing falls through the cracks or else you screwed up. <laughs> and um, can a showrunner get fired? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> showrunner has a massive target on, on his back or her back. Right. The, the, the issue is that, like, a lot of times in TV, in movies generally when somebody's an executive producer, it just means that they had something to do with the deal. They put up the right. money or they, you know, in TV – there's a bunch of executive producers, but one of them is the showrunner. And that showrunner does have a target. It's like being the head chef at a kitchen. You have to make sure that every salad and every fork and every soup and every steak is being dealt with. And if, when okay. things gets no, if you do it right, nobody notices. Right, exactly. And if you do it wrong, anything goes wrong and people come ask questions. If those happen enough, they replace the showrunner. Right. How did you end up into all this? How did you end up in in TV and in reality? I guess. Well, well, you, yeah. How did you end up all in this industry? I went to Syracuse University to be a sports broadcaster. Okay. I graduated in '99, and I got a job as the weekend sports anchor at the NBC affiliate in the Redwood Forest, and Redwood I was driving out from New York to LA, I got to Utah <laughs> and there was a message on the machine back home. I didn't have a cell phone by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and it was the Howard Stern people. Oh, wow. And they offered me a job as a production assistant at E. Okay. And I was standing in Utah and I was like, well, literally there was like a point at which it split off from like the 15 to the 10 or something. Not the 15 or the 10, but don't quote me on that. But yeah, yeah, Which, whichever. One was continuing on the 10 or the 15, and one of them was going went up north. And, and I said, well, L.A. is closer. And also, the job at E was literally 50 bucks more a week <laughs> at in Humboldt County. Mm. And I said, screw it. I'll just go be a PA at E. That sounds like more fun anyway. Okay. I came to L.A., and I was a PA at E., and it was right in August of 99. Matter of fact, it was, it was 23 years ago yesterday. And, and that was pretty much the beginning of reality television as we know it. Mm. It was right when Survivor was starting about to come on the air. And uh, I guess I was off to the races after that. I went to go work at MTV for a while. VH1, and I think that was just the era that I was in. When you say why reality, I never really intended to be in reality, but that was what was going on when I got here. Okay. And so how was the Howard Stern show? What was that experience like? Well, it's funny. I got hired at E! for that, but I ended up on Mysteries and Scandals. There was a mix-up, mix but I, I'm actually very happy because I was actually dragged into an office about a week into my experience at E! and said you were supposed to be at Howard and now you're on Mysteries and Scandals, which one do you want to be at? Mm. And I 
those mysteries and scandals in the end because I felt there was more upward trajectory. Like the Howard Stern people tended to be lifers. Okay. Once, once you worked on one position at Howard Stern, you ended up never being there again. So I got hired by the Howard Stern people to be at PAD, but I ended up getting stationed. On, do you remember the show Mysteries and Scandals with AJ Benza? No, I do not. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. It was the only reason people remember it is because the host was standing in the often in the graveyard and there was like smoke and it was about old Hollywood, you know, okay. some some old Hollywood, you know, star that had disappeared or there was some mystery around an old Hollywood star. But uh, you know, I did that for a year and then I went off to a VH1 show. Okay. And um, how did going back to when you had those two choices? what how did the howard stern show get how did, how were they aware of you like how did that end up happening well that's a good question i skipped over that part when i was at syracuse we had to do what's called a capstone project which is like a final thesis project mm. and in mine on hank the angry drunken dwarf who was a character from the howard stern show <laughs> my buddy tom from new jersey loved howard stern and so he was calling howard stern every day to ask for permission okay Eventually, Doug Goodstein, who's uh, one of the producers of the show, he called us back. We, we spoke to him. Okay. I was in like my college dorm room sort of thing. <laughs> we spoke to him and then we hung up the phone and two seconds later, the phone rang back and it was him again because he was trying to verify if we were not pranking him. Right. It wasn't a joke. I thought we were joking. Hmm. And then we were like, no, we really are serious. So then... Then uh, we went and did that. We ended up getting to go to the Stern show and we followed Hank around for a while. Hank died in 2001. But okay. when I first got to LA, I was his chaperone. He used to pay me in Banana Republic gift certificates. <laughs> and uh, yes, you're always, you know, well dressed at least. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was it. And so they eventually said, Do you want to be a PA? in post because the show was in out of new york obviously but okay. the post production was done in out here in la so um you know D uh, doug goodstein and scott einzinger uh hooked me up with a pa gig here and then when I, sh when I showed up at e they they like marched me to my desk and it was mm -hmm. on mysteries and scandals and i was confused i was like i thought i was coming to work for stern and then about a week later I got a call from one of the guys who runs E. His name is Gary Sokol. Okay. And he said, listen, there's been a mix-up. We put you in the wrong place. Do you want to go back over to Stern? I had been at Mystery Scandals for a week. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm going to stay, actually. You, like, you liked working there? You liked it? I felt I could move up faster. Okay. So it was just more like a career, a strategic career trajectory for you then yeah i don't know what would have happened i don't know obviously what happened to alternate rob but <laughs> to alternate rob actually okay. hey that that's a that's an idea we should we should find find that out and and see what happens it could it could be good it could be bad who knows who knows right. and what did your family think about you you know coming to la and were they supportive of all this or did they think you were like what are you doing what are you talking about no my family was very supportive of it i come okay. from a family of uh tv and movie fans okay and, uh, i think that they 
they were supportive of the idea. I think it was tough because it's 3,000 miles away and in a different country. I don't, I don't right. look like somebody who wasn't born in America. Right, or, I understand. Sound like some, I should say. Sound like somebody who wasn't born in America. But at the end of the day, being a Canadian in America is still a foreigner. Yeah, I, I understand. I went through the struggle myself. So I, when I tell people I'm an immigrant, they laugh at me. And I'm like, I might not look, it's the same. Like, if you don't have a social, you don't have a social. Like, Kate, to break it to you. Exactly. <laughs> like, there, there is, yeah, there's a bit of a struggle there. But we Maybe won't get into it. It's closer, I think, to being American because we're used to the same programming and the same clothes and the same products and the same right. time Language zone. predominantly, yeah. unless um, you're French. Do you speak French? I do. I speak French yeah. relatively fluently, but only because I grew up, like, I'm as French as you are. But I just I grew up in Quebec, so I right, right, right. So meaning we're not French for those people who don't understand the Canadian, the Canadian lingo there. Um, right. So, what is your favorite part of the business? Like, what do you like the most out of out of now or the past or however you want to answer that? My favorite part of the business is for sure thinking something. And then getting to see it mm. like i've created chaos because of that like one time we were shooting a thing on on duck dynasty and it was a scene in the woods and i you know i said i was watching it and i was like there's no way this is going to be in the show like we're wasting our time like this isn't i had, I had written the scene it was my mm. fault totally my fault i had written the scene <laughs> And then we were shooting the scene in the woods and I was like, this is garbage. This is stupid. This is, there's no way this is going to happen. So I said, I sort of was, there was a bunch of people, there must've been 50 people around. And I, when I said, this is dumb, let's just go over here and do the squirrel hunt thing. And like, before I could even, I wasn't even sure what I was saying, by the way, I wasn't a hundred percent certain that I was right. Right. And before I could finish my sentence, helicopters were moving, medics were moving. Oh, wow. Lights were moving, you know, ca camera people, audio people, grips and, 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 and talent. And, and all of a sudden I was like, what the hell just happened here? Like, it, it was incredible. It was like, it was like you, it's rare. It's very rare to be in the situation, but it, it's, a, it's a really powerful feeling to be able to, you know what I always say about this? There's like, don't quote me on these numbers, but just to get the point across, <laughs> there's like 18 million people in Southern California. And I don't, I'm making this up, but I'm betting you like 3 million people think that they're in some way connected to the entertainment industry or that they have a friend who's in the entertainment industry. And then there's like probably actually like a few hundred thousand people that are in the entertainment industry. And of those people, it's mostly accountants and lawyers and agents and, and, and people who facilitate it, post-production mm -hmm. facilities. How many people actually get to write stuff or think up stuff and then eventually get to see that stuff in real screen, right. time? Mm. That's, a, that's a great feeling. And it, it's, it's such a great feeling that it's worth trudging through all the shit. <laughs> how to say that? Yeah, um, maybe not, but too late now. All the BS right. to get there. Mm. 
And what's, what's like the biggest hurdle for you or what has it been so far? What do you feel about that? Like a big hurdle you've overcome? Besides not knowing, I think, I think if you grow up here, you have a big advantage, but, okay. but I think, you know, obviously, obviously the industry is changing a lot and, and I don't, it's 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 dangerous territory because I, I think the biggest problem with 2022 is absolutely everybody is cultivating their victim story. Me, can you? Yeah. Every every single person I know, in some way, is saying, "Well, it's harder for women. It's harder for LGBTQ. It's okay, harder that's what you meant. Okay, it's harder for you. people of color. It's harder for it's harder for white guys. It's harder for people getting older. It's harder. Every every single person counts themselves, whether they're Male, female, black, white, straight, gay. Everybody is in some way right now feeling like, oh, the 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 deck is stacked against me somehow. Mm. And so it's easy for me to say, you say, what's the things that I've overcome? I think our industry is changing a lot, probably for the better. I think it's a good thing that that it's happening. But I think in the ever-changing climate, I'm getting older. <laughs> and uh and and there's less i'm sure i'm sure the majority of people who work in our industry are still straight white dudes i'm okay. happy to admit that but but that's becoming more and more uh frowned upon so i feel that yes. a little bit and uh i guess i guess the answer to your question would be surviving and continuing to be able to sell stuff and create stuff mm -hmm. and keep going to keep going i think the answer is to keep going, keep going. <laughs> just to keep going awesome yeah. and would you like to give a shout out to anyone today since this is shout out with sage has there been anyone instrumental or pivotal to you so in your in your career so far well i think a million people right i think i think all those little people along the way that helped and yeah continue to help me i mean um, I got a series of small breaks. Like there was never, there's never any one big thing, but like Doug right. from each, from each of the step leading up. to the next, right? Yeah. My buddy Bill hired me early on when he had no business doing that. And he was instrumental in getting me on to breaking Bonaducci, which ultimately got me the biggest loser and ultimately got me an agent. Hmm. And, and you know, I think there's just I don't think there's any one big person I can point to, but there's certainly hundreds of people away. along the way. Right? Yeah, have cool. I? I don't know if I've made any sense here today. Have I? Yes, yes. You gave us a lot of really, really interesting stuff and stuff I didn't know about the reality world even though I've, you know, I've worked on a few little things behind the scenes production wise. So I sort of know, but obviously not as much as you or as much as, um, yeah, as much as you. And I'm sure a lot of other people know even less than me. So, uh, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and for being here. Is there, can, how do people find you? Do you have Instagram or do you, do you care Instagram. about that stuff or? <laughs> Yes, I have Instagram and I have Twitter, both my name, Rob Warsaw, and either one of them. That's actually my Facebook as well, but uh, yeah. Okay, cool. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Stream and Hub Radio on Shout Out with Sage. So thanks, Rob. This is so much fun. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you had a good time. Thanks. Have a good one. Okay. Bye.